Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be here today and sharing another story with you. I'm researching and writing this on December 26th, 2022, and scheduling it for play in March of 2023. And March is Women's History Month, so what better time to share this story of a true American hero? It's been 219 years since Lewis and Clark and company were immersed in a long east-to-west trek across a mostly unknown territory, which stretches from Mandan, North Dakota, to the Pacific Ocean, across the northern tier of what is today America, and what was then the unexplored Rockies and Pacific Northwest, a collection of oft-times warring tribes who all received Lewis and Clark's expedition with grace and wonder. What a time of discovery that was, and what a story that was. It ended successfully, providing President Thomas Jefferson with an invaluable trove of information regarding the territory which was largely unmapped and unknown. And although credit for that success is rightly shared amongst all of them, there was a standout in the person of a teenage girl carrying a papoose on her back across a thousand miles of wilderness, who served as a guide, translator, and moderating influence amongst the group. Her name, as we commonly pronounce it today, was Sacagawea, probably pronounced Sacagawea in reality, as many historians have determined. But opinions are still divided. But the fact is, all those historians have to do is look at an entry in Clark's journal that lays her name out phonetically. And we tell that story a little later here. We can be thankful that her name and legend is still taught in schools, and occasionally she still makes headlines, as she did about a year and a half ago in 2021, when a statue featuring her likeness with Lewis and Clark was pulled down in Charlottesville, Virginia. When I first saw that headline, it caused a reaction. Until I searched for the reason the statue was removed. It was said that Sacagawea was shown in a subservient position on her knees beside Lewis and Clark, and after a look at that photo image of the statue, I had to agree that the complaint issued by both local Monacan Indians and seconded by her tribe of origin was deserved. The creator, I'm sure, saw it differently, but she deserves better. I've been wanting to do her story for a few years. She deserves a place of honor, to me at least, at a time when the country needs leadership more than ever. Maybe it's a subconscious voice trying to tell me that in some way one of America's true indigenous peoples will appear to light the way. Who knows? We'll see. History repeats itself. As our fans here at 1001 Heroes know, I'll do my best to dig in and deliver the known and especially the unknown story about Sacagawea, her family, and her circle of contacts. Here at the beginning, I have many questions. What happened to her after the expedition? Where was she buried, and when did she die? What happened to her son, whose nickname was Pomp, and his father, Charbonneau? What became of them after the expedition? Did they have more children? Did she ever see the Pacific Ocean? Who first suggested that the U.S. mint a coin in her honor? These are just a few of the questions I have. Although reliable historical information about Sacagawea is limited, Researchers have found many nuggets through the decades. We do know now that she was born circa 1788 into the Salmon-Eater tribe, also known as Lemhi Shoshone, near present-day Salmon, Lemhi County, Idaho. 
This is near the Continental Divide at the present-day Idaho-Montana border. In 1800, when she was about 12 years old, Sacagawea and several other children were taken captive by a group of Hidatsa in a raid that resulted in the deaths of several Shoshone, four men, four women, and several boys. Some of her brothers and sisters survived. Others were killed. Contrary to the modern image that some historians have created regarding American Indians, warring and kidnapping and the owning of captive slaves was commonplace among tribes. It was survival of the fittest among the Indians, a fact that made their warriors a very tough and very smart bunch to contend with when it came to war. The Hidatsa people traded with European trappers and settlers in the region, which is how they got their hands on the guns they used to exert dominance over their natural enemies, the Shoshone. It's unclear how long the Hidatsi people kept Sacagawea before they sold her, but it was long enough for her to become fluent in the Hidatsa language, a skill that would later serve her very well. We do know that Sacagawea was held captive at a Hidatsa village near present-day Washburn, North Dakota. Washburn is a city in southern McLean County, North Dakota, United States, along the upper Missouri River. Washburn didn't get its name until 1882. Prior to that, it was known as Fort Mandan, having been given its name by Lewis and Clark when they wintered there in 1804-1805. Before that, it was only known to Indians and trappers, and by what name, we don't know. There have been two popular translations of Sacagawea's name. Both her native Shoshone people and the Hidatse people have claimed to have given Sacagawea her name. In the Shoshone language, Sacagawea, or Sakakawea, translates to boat pusher. In the Hidatsa tongue, Sakaja means bird and Wea means woman, so she was called bird woman. Today, Washburn is home to the North Dakota Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, which focuses on the expedition's winter near the Mandan village. It houses a full-scale replica of Fort Mandan, which workers of the expedition built as their base and one of the expedition's canoes. At about age 13, Sacagawea was sold by her Adatsa captors into a non-consensual marriage to Toussaint Charbonneau, a Quebeci trapper. He had also bought another young Shoshone girl, known as Otter Woman, for a wife. Charbonneau was variously reported to have purchased both girls from the Hidatsa, or to have won Sacagawea while gambling. Historians aren't sure. Through his extensive contact with the Hidatsa people, Charbonneau became very fluent in their language in addition to his native French. With Sacagawea speaking Hidatsu and Shoshone, the two of them became invaluable to Lewis and Clark as translators. For them, it all came down to being at the right place at the right time, and that place was Fort Mandan in the winter of 1804 and 1805. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Now back to our story. This is the best place to give you Charbonneau's story, which most people don't know, and it's interesting. Charbonneau was born in Boucherville, Quebec, near Montreal, between 1759 and 1767, as close as anyone can tell. Boucherville was a community with strong links to exploration and the fur trade. He was of French and Iroquois ancestry. His paternal great-grandmother, Marguerite de Noyon, was the sister of Jacques de Noyon, who had explored the region around Kamanistakia, 
present-day Thunder Bay, Ontario, in 1688. In the late 1790s, Charbonneau became a fur trader who lived among the Hidatsa and Mandan native tribes. All this a testimony to how strongly and early the French were gaining a foothold in Canada, and it was the European demand for furs that financed all that. Charbonneau worked for a time as a fur trapper with the Northwest Company, assigned to the Pine Fort on the Assiniboine River in what is now Manitoba. The Northwest Company was founded to compete with the dominant Hudson Bay Company, which was an English company that employed many Frenchmen. This company pushed west, which allowed it to trade with the Mandan and Hidatsa native tribes. John MacDonald, recorder of one of their expeditions, first noted Charbonneau in their historical journal. After several routine mentions of Charbonneau, MacDonald wrote on May 30, 1795, Toussaint Charbonneau was stabbed at the Manitou-a-Banc end of the Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, in the act of committing an assault upon the daughter of an old saltier woman who stabbed him with a canoe awl, a fate he hardly deserved for his brutality. It was with difficulty he could walk back over the portage. While living among the Hidatsa people, Charbonneau purchased, or won as a gambling prize, a Shoshone girl, Sacagawea, bird woman, from the Hidatsa. The Hidatsa had captured Sacagawea on one of their annual raiding and hunting parties to the west. It is possible that Sacagawea had little choice in the matter, or that she chose it because it was preferable to her previous position. By the summer of 1804, Sacagawea was pregnant with their first child. In November of 1804, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark came to the area, built Fort Mandan, and recruited members to the Corps of Discovery. Originally, Lewis and Clark were working with a Frenchman named La Roque. However, that relationship became increasingly tense. This led Lewis and Clark to recruit Charbonneau, who worked under La Roque. Charbonneau was asked to join the expedition as a translator. While Charbonneau could speak French and some Hidatsa, Lewis and Clark were more enthusiastic about having two Shoshone women join them. With Charbonneau, Sacagawea, and Otter Woman's skills combined, the expedition gained the ability to speak Hidatsa and Shoshone. They hired Charbonneau on November 4th, and his wives moved into Fort Mandan with Charbonneau a week later. On February 11th, 1805, at the fort, Charbonneau and Sacagawea's son, Jean-Baptiste, was born. William Clark named the baby Pomp. In the winter, as the expedition was being prepared, Charbonneau had second thoughts about his role with Lewis and Clark. This was because Charbonneau had received gifts from the Northwest Company upon news of his newborn son. The gifts given to him included two arms length of scarlet cloth and one of blue, a pair of corduroy coats, one vest, a length of red cloth decorated with bars, 200 musket balls, a supply of powder, three knives, and some tobacco. This upset Lewis and Clark as they saw these gifts as a bribe for Charbonneau to work with the company to deter American ventures in the fur trade. On top of being dissatisfied with the requirement to stay on guard and perform manual labor amongst other tasks, he was also being treated as a traitor by his new employers. On March 12, 1805, he quit the expedition, but on March 17th he returned and apologized, requesting to rejoin the company and he was rehired the following day. His performance during the journey was mixed. Meriwether Lewis called him a man of no particular merit, 
and many historians have painted Charbonneau in a distinctly unfavorable light. One of the most well-known anecdotes about Charbonneau is the incident with the white pirogue. On May 14, 1805, the pirogue guided by Charbonneau was hit by a gust of wind and lost control. Charbonneau panicked and nearly capsized the boat, which would have meant the loss of valuable equipment and papers. It was only with the help of his wife, Sacagawea, that these important items were saved. Meriwether Lewis was irate, writing that Charbonneau was perhaps the most timid waterman in the world. Charbonneau was also known for his short temper with his wives. On August 14, 1805, he struck Sacagawea in a fit of anger and was reprimanded by Clark. This occasion, in addition to the other attack earlier in his life, gave Charbonneau a bad reputation. Charbonneau, however, did make several contributions to the success of the expedition. He was helpful when the expedition encountered French trappers from Canada, and he served as a cook. His recipe for Baudin Blanc, which is a sausage made from bison meat, was praised by several members of the party. Additionally, his skill in striking a bargain came in handy when the expedition acquired much-needed horses at the Shoshone encampment. We'll circle back to Charbonneau and his two wives and children's stories later in this story. There is much to tell. Sacagawea's fate was settled when Thomas Jefferson bought the land mass known then as Louisiana from France, doubling the size of the new American nation. He then commissioned an exploration of the remaining territory extending to the Pacific and put it under the capable leadership of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. It began officially on May 14, 1804, with a small fleet of boats on the Missouri River just above St. Louis, the beginning of a journey that would take them 8,000 miles on rivers, across plains, over mountains, and across valleys that eventually led to the Pacific. It had to have been the most exciting travel through unexplored land in American history, and, if recounted, would make a great series on TV. Maybe it's been done, and I just missed it. You can let me know. By October of 1804, the expedition had reached the Mandan villages, the first on the west bank, and the second a little further up the river on the opposite bank. As Lewis and Clark had been informed, the Mandan villages were an important trade center, the Hadatsa villages bordered the Mandans, and they were friends and allies, so they were formidable against unfriendly tribes. During the late summer and early fall, the villages attracted many different traders from other tribes, as well as trappers, and traders including those from the British Hudson's Bay and Northwest Companies. From their first encounter with the Mandans, Lewis and Clark were pleased with the easy friendship, but still they built a fort to protect their mission and supplies. Many visitors came, and Charbonneau and his two wives were among them. Charbonneau offered his services as an interpreter, and because and only because his wives could interpret more Indian languages was he hired. Finally, Lewis and Clark said they would take Charbonneau, but only one wife could go, and they chose Sacagawea. She was 15 years old then and six months pregnant, but she was still the best choice. What a huge asset she would become! as she knew a good portion of the country that they would be traveling through. She could interpret, and due to the fact that she was a woman and pregnant, any Indians meeting them would know that the party wasn't intending on war. Her baby came while they were still camped at Fort Mandan on a cold winter's day 
in February of 1805. A slight snow had fallen the night before, and the conditions were about as primitive as it gets. Charbonneau was gone with the hunting party, whose mission it was to supply meat for the camp. We get a clear picture from this journal entry. We sent down a party of sleds to relieve the horses from their loads. The weather fair and cold, with a northwest wind. At five o'clock, one of the wives of Charbonneau was delivered of a boy, this being her first child, and she was suffering considerable. When Mr. Jessam informed Captain Lewis that he had frequently administered to persons in her situation a small dose of the rattle of a rattlesnake, which had never failed to hasten the delivery before. Having some of the rattle, Captain Lewis gave it to Mr. Jessam, who crumbled two of the rings of it between his fingers, and mixing it with a small quantity of water, gave it to her. Captain Lewis was informed within 10 minutes that the delivery was successful. Little Jean Baptiste soon became America's youngest explorer. At the age of seven weeks, he was strapped to his mother's back when the Corps, just 33 in number, set off in April to resume the journey to the Pacific, proceeding upstream on the Missouri River. What a time that must have been! Sacagawea would almost instantly gain respect from the Corps leaders due to her fortitude at performing domestic chores, such as making camp every evening and helping every way she could. She displayed her courage a few weeks into the voyage when she, Charbonneau, and several Corps members were sharing a pirogue rigged with sails, and for reasons never fully explained, Charbonneau, who was manning the sails, panicked when a squall struck. This pirogue was holding critically important records and supplies. One of the men yelled at Charbonneau to bring in the sails, but he failed to hear the warning or understand it, or became panicked of drowning, and he froze. Water was pouring into the boat as Lewis and Clark watched in horror from the shore, helpless to do anything. The men in the pirogue were bailing frantically to move the incoming water out of the careening boat. Then maps, journals, and medical supplies, wrapped in a watertight covering, but still in danger of sinking or being lost forever, began to float overboard. Lewis, standing on shore, was furious. He was about to plunge into the cold water to try and retrieve the supplies. One of the men in the boat turned his gun on Charbonneau and threatened to shoot him if he didn't right the boat by dropping the sails. This appeared to wake Charbonneau up from his state of shock and he finally lowered the sails. Sacagawea was sitting in the stern and calmly began to retrieve the packages as they appeared floating by her, having to stretch dangerously out to grab some of them. Lewis and Clark were both relieved and proud of her calmness under duress and her quick thinking, with her baby on her back, had made this entry in their diary. By four o'clock in the evening, our instruments, medicine, merchandise, provisions, were perfectly dried, repacked, and put on board the pirogue. The Indian woman, to whom I ascribe equal fortitude and resolution with any person on board at the time of the accident, caught and preserved most of the light articles which were washed overboard. Soon after that incident, Lewis wrote in his journal for May 20th, about five miles above the mouth of the Shell River, a handsome river of about 50 yards in width, discharged itself into the Shell River on the starboard side or upper side. This stream we call Sacagawea. It hadn't taken this young lady long to carve a place in history for herself. 
we've talked a little bit about her contributions. Unmentioned thus far are the survival tricks she shared with the Corps. It wasn't healthy to live solely on the meat provided by the group's hunger, and she pointed out berries that were safe to eat, as well as ones which were not. When food became scarce, she led her companions to places in the woods where edible roots could be found. Not long after the party reached the Great Falls of Missouri, Sacagawea became very ill. Clark, who served as the doctor of the group, bled her, which was the custom of the day. He wrote in his log that evening that he had moved her to a section of his boat less exposed to the sun to keep her cool. Meriwether Lewis, in turn, began searching for a sulfur spring, believing that sulfur had healing powers for fever and pain. He found some sulfur water and tried it on Sacagawea. It seemed to help. He wrote, Her fever and illness gave me some concern as well for this poor object herself. Then with a young child in her arms, as from her condition of her being our only dependence for a friendly negotiation with the Snake Indians, on whom we will need to depend on horses to assist us in our portage from the Missouri to the Columbia River. As it turned out, the sulfur water did help, and when she was better enough to eat, she ate white apples and dried fish, too much too early, and she relapsed. Lewis furiously turned on her husband for allowing her to gorge herself on food while she was still weak and recovering. He and Clark were losing faith fast in Charbonneau, especially after that boat incident. But she was young and strong, and soon she came around, much to the relief of everyone there. Soon after her recovery, after making camp along the river bank, Sacagawea, her boy, Pomp, Charbonnet, and Clark came very close to death. They had arrived at a nearby falls when a huge black cloud appeared overhead. Fearing a deluge, Clark led them to a ravine which had a rock overhang. Almost as soon as they arrived, the sky let loose with torrents of water, enough so that a river soon formed in that ravine and was moving rocks and dislodged trees toward them, all within seconds. Clark grabbed his rifle and started up the hill from the ravine, with Sacagawea and Charbonneau behind him, when again Charbonneau panicked and failed to help Sacagawea up the incline. Clark quickly got behind her, and pushed her upward as she held the baby in her arms, and they scrambled up the steep bluff to safety, just in time. Clark's servant York and Lewis had come to look for them, and were there to help them up the incline, again, just in time. Clark would later leave this entry in his diary. One moment longer, and it would have swept them into the river, just above the great cataract of eighty-seven feet, where they would have inevitably perished. For you younger listeners, a cataract is a waterfall, and that 87-foot fall, just shorter than a nine-story high building. They wouldn't have stood a chance on the rocks below. Miles ahead, the Corps approached a landmark which was familiar to Sacagawea, a large rock formation called Beaver Rock, for the simple reason that it was shaped somewhat like a beaver. She became very excited, and assured the leaders that they had reached the land of her people. Today it's still called Beaverhead Rock, and it's located 14 miles south of Twin Bridges on Montana Highway 41. It's managed by the Montana State Park System, and it's a huge rock formation. In a diary entry dated August 8, 1805, Lewis wrote that Sacagawea recognized the point of a high plain to our right, which she informed us was not very distant from the summer retreat of her nation on a river beyond the mountains, which runs to the west. This hill, she says her nation calls, the Beaver's Head. 
she assures us that we shall either find her people on this river, or on the river immediately west of its source, which from its present size cannot be very distant. As it is now all important for us to meet with these people as soon as possible, I determined to proceed tomorrow with a small party to the source of the principal stream of this river, and past the mountains to the Columbia, and down that river until I find the Indians. In short, it is my resolution to find them or some others who have horses, even if it takes one month, for without horses we shall be obliged to leave a great part of our stores, of which it appears to me that we have a stock already sufficiently small for the length of the voyage before us. It's hard to imagine the joy Sacagawea must have felt to be reunited with the tribe after being kidnapped and sold off to a French trapper. She had no idea if any of her siblings or parents were alive, or even if her tribe had been forced off their land by other tribes. The place in which the Corps camped that night was the exact spot where her group had been attacked, and she had been taken. The next morning, Lewis and Clark divided the Corps into two parties to search for Sacagawea's tribe, which she insisted must be close by. Two days of search, though, turned up no sign of Indians until the end of the second day, when Lewis glimpsed one Indian on a horse. The horseman was stopped some distance away, just staring back at them, making no response to their waving and shouting. Another day passed, and that was when Lewis spotted more Indians, this time young girls and a woman. Through sign language, he convinced them that he was friendly and that he wished to see their village. Sacagawea was not with his group then. She was with Clark's group. As the girls led them toward the village, a group of men rode out to greet them, obviously to check them out and see how heavily armed they were and take their measure. The leader was the same man Lewis had seen the day before. He turned out to be the Shoshone chief, Kamehawade. Meanwhile, Clark, Sacagawea, and their group were searching for Lewis. Suddenly, Clark saw Sacagawea begin to dance and show every mark of the most extravagant joy, as he put it. A jubilant crowd approached the small party. One of the women rushed up to Sacagawea and hugged her. The two women had been abducted by the same group of raiders, and the two recognized each other. Soon Clark and Lewis were invited by Chief Kamehawait to his teepee, and although they were eager to discuss horses, things stayed pretty much silent until Sacagawea arrived. When she came in, she sat down quietly, demurely, as was the custom of their people in the presence of a chief. Having done that, she looked up and seeing the chief, instantly jumped up and moved toward him, hugging him and throwing over him her blanket and weeping profusely. Kamehawait was her brother, so cheaply courtesies be damned, you might say, in her joy to see him. As all this settled in, it became obvious that she was now an Indian princess. Sadly, her brother told her that all her family were dead except for him and one younger brother who was presently gone and a son of her eldest sister. After assimilating all this news, it became hard to translate because she was so full of emotion. This was occurring in the late summer and Lewis and Clark were eager to get going knowing they had high mountains to cross before the first snows. Even a day's delay could have been the difference between life and death, and they knew it. But patience was needed here, and the last they wanted to do was to insult their hosts. On August 22nd, the serious negotiations began. They were to get the worst of the deal with the Shoshones, 
even with Sacagawea's help. The best they could trade for was a bunch of tired old bags, older horses, which didn't look like they could make the trip across the Great Divide. Once they crossed the mountains, they could leave the horses with the Nez Perce tribe, which was then friendly, but they had to make the crossings first. From these mountains the rivers flowed westward toward the Pacific. They would travel by river to the coast, the Columbia River, which was loaded with salmon. During the first week of November, they traveled about 50 miles a day downriver. When they reached a vast expanse of water, Lewis believed they'd reached the Pacific, but instead it was a large bay. Saltwater bay, yes, but not the Pacific. It would be weeks of wet camping before they came close to the ocean. Not close enough to walk the beaches, but still knowing they were close, and now looking for a safe camping site that couldn't be flooded and was safe from the winds, which were prevalent that November. And it was getting cold. They finally voted as a group on the final site for camping, which they would soon call Fort Clatsop, and the vote was given by all, including Sacagawea and York. They prepared to camp there for the winter. Soon word came to them that a whale was beached not too far away, and Clark began to gather men for an expedition to secure blubber and whale oil. Sacagawea wasn't picked. She spoke up anyway. She wanted to go. She was ignored, but not for long, when she insisted upon going, saying she had traveled a long way with them to see the great water, and now that a monstrous fish was in sight, there was no way you were going to keep her back. She thought it very hard that she wouldn't be allowed to go, but Clark finally gave her the thumbs up, and she traveled with him. Neither he nor Lewis recorded her reaction to the great water, or the whale, but she had to know she was making tribal history by gazing upon the Pacific and seeing a whale. When she returned to her people, I can see her marking off the length of that whale as she explains it, and I can see the look of wonder on the faces of her people as they tried to picture the size of it. New Year's Day of 1806 finally dawned upon the Corps, now camped in a wet fog for months until they could travel safely east again. Lewis and Clark and their men had been tasked with exploring the Northwest, finding a route to the Pacific Ocean, documenting the natural resources of the land, and establishing a rapport with the Native Americans living in the region. And they had been successful in every measure, without losing a man. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. On that return trip... They approached the Rocky Mountains in July of 1806. On July 6th, Clark recorded, The Indian woman informed me that she had been in this plain frequently, and I knew it well. She said we would discover a gap in the mountains in our direction. As it turned out, they did. Today we call it Gibbons Pass. A week later, on July 13th, Sacagawea advised Clark to cross into the Yellowstone River Basin at what is now known as Bozeman Pass. Later, this was chosen as the optimal route for the Northern Pacific Railway to cross the Continental Divide. So if you're trying to make the argument that Sacagawea had an impact on the growth of American commerce, you have a pretty good argument. While Sacagawea has been depicted as a guide for the expedition, she is recorded as providing direction in only a few instances, primarily in present-day Montana. Her work as an interpreter helped the party to negotiate with the Shoshone but she also had a significant value to the mission, as we mentioned earlier on, simply by her presence on the journey, as having a woman and infant accompany them demonstrated the peaceful intent of the expedition. 
"'You won't find a young woman with a papoose on her back "'in any Indian war party. "'That's a fact.' While traveling through what is now Franklin County, Washington, in October of 1805, Clark noted that the wife of Chabono, Charbonneau, our interpreter, we find reconciles all the Indians as to our friendly intentions a woman with a party of men is a token of peace. As Clark traveled downriver from Fort Bandit at the end of the journey, on board the pirogue near the Rickery village, he wrote to Charbonneau, "'You have been a long time with me "'and conducted yourself in such a manner "'as to gain my friendship. "'You were a woman who accompanied you "'that long, dangerous, fatiguing route "'to the Pacific Ocean and back "'deserved a greater reward "'for her attention and services on that route "'than we had in our power to give her at the Mandans. "'As to your little son, my boy Pomp,' "'Clark adds in parentheses, "'you well know my fondness of him "'and my own anxiety to take him "'and raise him as my own child.' If you are disposed to accept either of my offers to you and will bring down your son, I recommend your woman Janie had best come along with you to take care of the boy until I get him. Wishing you and your family great success and with anxious expectations of seeing my little boy Baptiste, I shall remain your friend, William Clark. That was written by Clark to Charbonneau, August twentieth, 1806. Following the expedition, Charbonneau and Sacagawea spent three years among the Hidatsa before accepting William Clark's invitation to settle in St. Louis, Missouri, in 1809. They did entrust Jean-Baptiste's education to Clark, who enrolled the young man in the St. Louis Academy boarding school. Sacagawea gave birth to a daughter, Lisette Charbonneau, in about 1812. Lisette was identified as a one-year-old girl in adoption papers in 1813, recognizing William Clark, who also adopted her older brother, Jean-Baptiste, that year. Because Clark's papers make no later mention of Lisette, it is believed that she died in childhood. It is also believed that Sacagawea died that year, 1812, very young. Charbonneau, without her to raise the child, would willingly have given him up at that point. According to Bonnie Spirit Windwalker Butterfield in 2010, Historical documents suggest that Sacagawea died in 1812 of an unknown sickness. For instance, a journal entry from 1811 by Henry Brackenridge, a fur trader at Fort Lisa Trading Post on the Missouri River, wrote that Sacagawea and Charbonneau were living at the fort. Brackenridge recorded that Sacagawea, quote, had become sickly and longed to revisit her native country, end quote. Butterfield notes that in 1812, a Fort Lisa clerk John Latigue recorded in his journal on, on December 20th that the wife of Charbonneau, a snake squaw, Shoshone, died of putrid fever. He said that she was aged about 25 years. She left a fine infant girl. Documents held by Clark show that Charbonneau had already entrusted their son Baptiste to Clark's care for a boarding school education at Clark's insistence. Jean Baptiste was to have quite a life in the West, as you'll soon hear. There is a tall obelisk standing in Sacagawea's honor at the believed site of her death in Mobridge, South Dakota. In February of 1813, a few months after Ludig's journal entry, 15 men were killed in an Indian attack on Fort Lisa, which was then located at the mouth of the Bighorn River. Ludig and Sacagawea's young daughter were among the survivors. Charbonneau was mistakenly thought to have been killed at this time, but he apparently lived to at least age 76. 
He had signed over formal custody of his son to William Clark in 1813. As further proof that Sacagawea died in 1812, Butterfield writes, an adoption document made in the Orphan's Court records in St. Louis, Missouri states, On August 11, 1813, William Clark became the guardian of Toussaint Charbonneau, a boy about 10 years, and Lizette Charbonneau, a girl about one year old. For a Missouri state court at the time to designate a child as orphaned and to allow an adoption, both parents had to be confirmed dead in court papers. The last recorded document referring to Sacagawea's life appears in William Clark's original notes written between 1825 and 1826. He lists the names of each of the expedition members and their last known whereabouts. For Sacagawea, he writes, Sacagawea, dead. So for all those trying to make the argument, as they did in a big Washington ceremony in 2003, that a name should be pronounced Sacagawea, that entry in William Clark's journal, spelled out like this, S-E space C-A-R space J-A space W-E space A-U, clearly saying Sacagawea. There are Indians out there saying that Sacagawea didn't die in 1812. She had left her husband Charbonneau, crossed the Great Plains, and married into a Comanche tribe. She was said to have returned to the Shoshone in 1860 in Wyoming, where she died in 1884. But there's no evidence supporting this tale. Right now, it's just legend. As we said, Sacagawea's son, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, had an adventurous life. Known as the Infant Who, with his mother, accompanied the explorers to the Pacific Ocean and back, he had built-in lifelong celebrity status. I'm going to spend some time with him, because although schools do a good job of teaching about the accomplishments of Sacagawea, not much time is left for the life of her son, Jean-Baptiste. Little Pomp didn't fade into obscurity, as you might expect. He became a guide, fur trapper, trader, military scout during the Mexican-American War, mayor of Mission San Luis Rey de Francia, and gold digger and hotel operator in Northern California. All those for starters. He spoke French and English and learned German and Spanish during his six years in Europe from 1823 to 1829. He spoke Shoshone and other Western Native American languages, which he picked up during his years of trapping and guiding, and he became a famous trapper and guide. As you know, with the help of some crushed rattlesnake rattles, Jean-Baptiste was born at Fort Mandan in North Dakota. Also, as you know, the expedition co-leader, William Clark, nicknamed the boy Pompey, or Little Pomp. After the death of his mother, he lived with Clark in St. Louis, Missouri, where he attended St. Louis Academy. Clark paid for his education. Interestingly, Jean-Baptiste and Sacagawea appear on the United States Sacagawea dollar coin. For those of you who haven't seen one, those coins are gold in color and worth one dollar. The front shows Sacagawea with baby on her back. The back of the coin changes every year. This year, as I write this, 2023, shows famous Indian ballet dancer Maria Taljeev. Jean-Baptiste is the second child depicted on United States currency. Now there's a trivia question for you. Who was the first? I looked it up, and it's Virginia Dare. She was on the 1937 U.S. silver dollar. Pompey's Pillar on the Yellowstone River in Montana 
and the community of Charbonneau, Oregon, are named for him. On June 21, 1823, at age 18, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau met Duke Friedrich Paul Wilhelm of Württemberg, the nephew of King Friedrich I Wilhelm Karl of Württemberg. Charbonneau was working at a caw trading post on the Kansas River, near present-day Kansas City, Kansas. Wilhelm was traveling in America on a natural history expedition to the Northern Plains, with Jean-Baptiste's father as his guide. On October 19, 1823, he invited the younger Charbonneau to return to Europe with him, which was agreed upon. The two set sail on the Smyrna from St. Louis in December of 1823. Jean-Baptiste lived at the Duke's place in Württemberg for nearly six years, where he learned German and Spanish and improved his English and French. The latter was still the dominant language of St. Louis, which at first enabled his conversations with the Duke. According to a 1932 translation of Wilhelm's journal by the historian Louis C. Butcher, Wilhelm wrote that Charbonneau was a companion on all my travels over Europe and Northern Africa until 1829. In 2001, Albert Fertwangler, Ph.D., questioned the accuracy of Butcher's German translation, noting two more recent translations of the Duke's journals, and suggests that Charbonneau's role in Wilhelm's court may have been less intimate than Butcher's perhaps romanticized account implied. I'll let the historians fight over that one. Charbonneau may have been hired as a servant rather than invited as a companion. We don't know. As support, he notes the apparent lack of further contact between the two men after Charbonneau's return to America. However, lack of contact in itself does not mean Charbonneau was a hired hand. Such an act may have been an insult to Clark, which the Duke likely would have avoided. As with many aspects of his life, little is known for certain about Charbonneau's time in Europe. Parish records in Württemberg showed that while there, Charbonneau fathered a child with Anastasia Katharina Fries a soldier's daughter. The baby, Anton Fries, died about three months after his birth. Nearly two decades later, while in California as an alcalde or magistrate, Charbonneau was recorded as being the father of another child. On May 4, 1848, Maria Caterina Charguana was born to Margarita Sobin, a Luiseno people woman, and Charbonneau. Sobin, 23 at the time, traveled to Mission San Fernando Rey de España near Los Angeles for the infant girl's baptism, performed on May 28, 1848, and recorded by Father Blas Ordaz as entry 1884. There's one for you ancestry hunters. I'll bet you a dime to a dollar that Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau has descendants out there now, and so far they've been able to avoid headlines. That would be a very interesting thing to check up on. Margaret Sobin later married Gregory Tujillo, and some of their descendants may be members of the La Jolla Band of Mission Natives. I checked to see if any descendants of Jean-Baptiste are recognized today, and so far, can't find any news of that. Maybe you can. In November of 1829, Charbonneau returned to St. Louis, where he was hired by Joseph Robideau as a fur trapper for the American Fur Company to work in Idaho and Utah. He attended the 1832 Pierre's Hole Rendezvous while working for the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. I've read accounts of those rendezvous, the Green River Rendezvous and others, and they must have been an incredible time while they lasted. There he fought in the bloodiest non-military conflict that preceded the Plains Indian Wars, which began in 1854. 
From 1833 to 1840, Charbonneau worked in the fur trade in the Rocky Mountain trapping system with other mountain men, American legends such as Jim Bridger, James Beckworth, and Joe Meek. From 1840 to 1842, he worked for Fort St. Vrain, floating bison hides and tongues 2,000 miles down the South Platte River to St. Louis. On one of the voyages, he camped with Captain John Fremont on his cartographic expedition. In 1843, he guided Sir William Drummond Stewart, a Scottish baronet, on his second long trip to the American West, which was a lavish hunting expedition. Seeking employment again, in 1844, Charbonneau went to Bent's Ford in Colorado, where he was a chief hunter, and worked also as a trader with Southern Plains Indians. William Boggs, a traveler who met him, wrote that Charbonneau wore his hair long and was very high-strung. It was said Charbonneau was the best man on foot on the plains or in the Rocky Mountains. His mother, had she been alive in 1844, would have been very proud of him. In October 1846, Charbonneau, Antoine LaRue, and Pauline Weaver were hired as scouts by General Stephen W. Kearney. Charbonneau's experience with military marches such as with James William Abert in August of 1845 along the Canadian River, and its fluency in native languages qualified him for the position. Kearney directed him to join Colonel Philip St. George Cook on an arduous march from Santa Fe, New Mexico to San Diego, California, a distance of 1,100 miles. That's a long march. Their mission was to build the first wagon road to Southern California and to guide some 20 huge Murphy supply wagons to the West Coast for the military during the Mexican-American War. A contingent of soldiers made up of some 339 Mormon men and six Mormon women, known as the Mormon Battalion, were the builders of that new road over the uncharted Southwest from Santa Fe to San Diego and then on to Los Angeles. A memorial to the historic trek of the Mormon Battalion and their guide Charbonneau has been erected at the San Pedro River one mile north of the U.S.-Mexico border near the present-day town of Palominas, Arizona. Other monuments or historic markers are in Tucson, Arizona, and in California at Box Canyon near Warner Springs at Temecula, at Old Town San Diego, and at Fort Moore in Los Angeles. Colonel Cook's diary mentions Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau some 29 times from November 16, 1846 to January 21, 1847. Eight of the 20 wagons reached Mission San Luis Rey de Francia, four miles from today's Oceanside, California, and the leaders counted the expedition as a success. Jean-Baptiste again had made his mark on history. Cook wrote of the Mormon battalion, history may be searched in vain for an equal march of infantry. Known as Cook's Road or the Gila Trail, but more currently known as the Mormon Battalion Trail, the wagon road was used by settlers, miners, stagecoaches of the Butterfield stage line, and cattlemen driving longhorns to feed the gold camps. Parts of the route became the Southern Pacific Railroad and U.S. Route 66, our U.S. History Highway. In February 1848, knowledge gained about the region was used as the basis of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which established the United States-Mexico border in December of 1853 following the Mexican-American War. In November of 1847, Charbonneau accepted an appointment from Colonel John D. Stevenson as alcalde, mayor, at Mission San Luis Rey de Francia. This position made him the only civilian authority 
a combined sheriff, lawyer, and magistrate, in a post-war region covering about 225 square miles. Between 1834 and 1850, those lands were owned by rancheros through legally questionable land grants. The rancheros hired local Luisueño people to do agricultural work. Many functioned in virtual servitude, and some rancheros paid them only with liquor. Trying to correct abuses and also facilitate post-war control, in November of 1847, Colonel Richard Barnes Mason, the territorial governor, ordered Charbonneau to force the sale of a large ranch owned by the powerful Jose Antonio Pico, whose family was politically connected. His brother, P.O. Pico, had been the last governor of California under Mexico. On January 1, 1848, Mason banned the sale of liquor to Native Americans. Such ordinances attacked the foundation of ranchero power and ability to do business. Eventually, the changes led to United States civilian control of California. Although Charbonneau was assisted by Captain J.D. Hunter as he negotiated with Pico, he saw that local resistance would make enforcing Mason's orders difficult. Charbonneau resigned his post in August of 1848 and was soon followed by Hunter. California statehood came September 9, 1850, and ended the post-war difficulties. In September of 1848, Charbonneau arrived in Placer County, California, at the American River, near what is now Auburn. Arriving early in what became known as the California Gold Rush, he joined only a handful of prospectors. Panning wasn't done during the hard Sierra Nevada winter, or spring runoff, so in June of 1849, he joined Jim Beckworth and two others at a camp on Buckner's Bar to mine the river at the Big Crevice. This claim was shallow and paid well, he wrote. Charbonneau lived at a site known as Secret Ravine, one of 12 ravines around Auburn. A successful miner, he kept working in the area for nearly 16 years. A measure of his success was that Charbonneau could afford the mining region's highly inflated cost of living. For example, at a time when a good wage in the West was $30 a month, it cost $8 to $16 per day to live in Auburn. Transiency was high, but Charbonneau was still there in 1860, working as the hotel manager at the Orleans Hotel in Auburn. By 1858, many miners had left the California fields for other gold rushes. In April of 1866, he departed for other opportunities at age 61. He may have headed for Montana to prospect for gold, although sites such as at Silver City and Delamar in Idaho Territory were much closer. It's not clear exactly why Charbonneau left Auburn, but the recessionary local economy was certainly a motivation. Before leaving, he visited the Placer Herald newspaper and visited with an editor who wrote later in his obituary, he was about returning to familiar scenes. Some of those familiar scenes may have been where he had lived and worked as a mountain man east of the Great Basin. His destination also may have been the Ohi Mountains, where rich placer deposits were discovered in May of 63. Or perhaps he sought to reach Alder Gulch near Virginia City, Montana, because it had produced $31 million in gold by late 1865. Other possible destinations were the Bannock, Montana gold strikes, or, as noted above, the mines at Silver City, formerly Ruby City, Dillamar, or Boonville. His route and travel method likely took him on a stagecoach over Donner Summit and east along the well-traveled Humboldt River Trail to Winnemucca, Nevada, then north to the U.S. Army's camp to McDermott at the Oregon border. 
Passing the camp in rugged terrain, the men reached an Alhe River crossing at present-day Rome, Oregon, where an apparent accident occurred, and Charbonneau went into the river. The accident's cause is unknown, but there are several possibilities. He may have been on a stagecoach operated by the Boise Silver City Winnemucca Stage Company that began its route in 1866 out of Camp McDermott, and in crossing the river, the coach sank. Or he may have been on horseback and fallen off the riverbank, or slipped out of the saddle while crossing. The Ohee River in snowmelt may have turned into white water. Other possibilities are that he was injured on the land journey, inhaled alkali dust, or fell ill from drinking contaminated water. There were a lot of ways to get sick and a lot of ways to die out west in those years. The ill Charbonneau was taken to Inskip Station at Danner, Oregon, built in 1865, about 33 miles from the river and west of Jordan Valley. Danner, Oregon is now a ghost town. The former stagecoach, mail stop, and general store served travelers to Oregon and the California goldfields. The former stagecoach, mail stop, and general store served travelers to Oregon and the California goldfields. It had its own well, and Charbonneau may have deteriorated from drinking that water. After his death there in Danner, his body was taken a quarter of a mile north and interred approximately 100 miles southwest of Ontario, Oregon. He died at age 61 on May 16, 1866. A death notice was sent by an unknown writer, likely one of two fellow travelers on the journey east, to the Ohee Avalanche newspaper, and it said that he died of pneumonia. This is the first documented evidence of his death. The Placer Herald obituary writer opined that he succumbed to the infamous mountain fever, to which many illnesses in the West were attributed. His grave site, listed on the National Register of Historic Places, is on one acre of land. It's near the abandoned Anderson General Store, which is intact and appears to be in 1940s condition. Now contained within the 6,000-acre Ruby Ranch, the site was donated to Malheur County by the owners, and the grave site has three historical markers. In 1971, the Malheur County Daughters of the American Revolution placed a marker. In 73, the Oregon Historical Society installed a marker, reading, Oregon History, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, 1805-1866. It says, This site marks the final resting place of the youngest member of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Born to Sacagawea and Toussaint Charbonneau at Fort Mandan, North Dakota, on February 11, 1805, Baptiste and his mother symbolized the peaceful nature of the Corps of Discovery. Educated by Captain William Clark at St. Louis, Baptiste at 18 traveled to Europe, where he spent six years becoming fluent in English, German, French, and Spanish. Returning to the American territories in 1829, he ranged the far west for nearly four decades as a mountain man, guide, interpreter, magistrate, and 49er. In 1866, he left the California goldfields for a new strike in Montana, contracted pneumonia en route, reached Inskip's Ranch here, and died on May 16, 1866. So if you ever do have a chance to visit that ghost town in Danner, Oregon, or Charbonneau's final resting place, offer a toast to one of America's true sons and pioneers and his mother. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We always appreciate reviews. So if you have a chance, please do send us a kind review. 
We also have a number of other 1001 podcasts, and I'll outline a couple of them here. The first is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where we have now over 400 great short stories written from the classic era, all types of short stories, some about minor league baseball, some about mystery, some about life, but they're all handpicked and they're all good. Again, that one's 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Give that a try, and I know you'll enjoy it. Another one we have, and it's fairly new, is 1001 Stories from the Old West. And there you'll find some great stories, most of them written by the people who were there and experienced it, or knew those who did. Another one is 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the Best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That's a podcast that you'll find fascinating and very, very enjoyable. Arthur Conan Doyle was an extremely prolific writer, and of course he created the great character Sherlock Holmes and his buddy, Watson. And if you enjoy a good mystery, stop by 1001 Stories for the Road and check out Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. That's 1001 Stories for the Road. And check the archives there, too. There's some great, great classic stories in those archives. That's it for now, everyone. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We'll return next Sunday at noon. For many years, we've done Sunday at 5, but I've now changed to Sunday at noon for almost all of our shows so that you listeners can have a little bigger piece of the weekend to enjoy listening. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon.